Chapter Twenty One of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Liberals of Percycross. Yes, Ontario Moggs was appalled, delighted, exalted, and nearly frightened out of his wits by an invitation conveyed to him by certain eager spirits of the town to come down and stand on the real radical interest for the borough of Percycross. The thing was not suggested to him till a day or two after Sir Thomas had been sounded, and he was then informed that not an hour was to be lost. The communication was made in the little back parlor of the Cheshire Cheese, and Moggs was expected to give an answer then and there. He stood with his hand on his brow for five minutes, and then asked that special question which should always come first on such occasions. Would it cost any money? Well, yes, the eager spirits of Percycross thought that it would cost something. They were forced to admit that Percycross was not one of those well-arranged boroughs in which the expenses of an election are all defrayed by the public spirit of the citizens. It soon became clear that the deputation had waited upon Moggs, not only because Moggs was a good radical, but because also Moggs was supposed to be a radical with a command of money. Ontario frowned and expressed an opinion that all elections should be made absolutely free to the candidates, and everybody ought to go to evan mr moggs said the leading member of the deputation but everybody don't cause things ain't as they ought to be there was no answer to be made to this ontario could only strike his forehead and think it was clear to him that he could not give an affirmative answer that night and he therefore with some difficulty arranged an adjournment of the meeting till the following afternoon at 2 p.m. "'We must go down by the 445 Express tomorrow,' said the leading member of the deputation, who even by that arrangement would subject himself to the loss of two days' wages, for he was a foreman in the establishment of Mr. Spicer, the mustard-maker, and whose allowance for expenses would not admit of his sleeping away from home a second night.' Ontario departed, promising to be ready with his answer by 2 p.m. on the following day. How bright with jewels was the crown now held before his eyes, and yet how unapproachable, how far beyond his grasp! To be a member of Parliament, to speak in that august assembly, instead of wasting his eloquence on the beery souls of those who frequented the Cheshire Cheese, to be somebody in the land at his early age, something so infinitely superior to a maker of boots. A member of Parliament was by law an esquire, and therefore a gentleman. Ralph Newton was not a member of Parliament, not half so great a fellow as a member of Parliament. Surely, if he were to go to Polly Neefit as a member of Parliament, Polly would reject him no longer and to what might it not lead? He had visions before his eyes of very beautiful moments in his future life, in which, standing as it were on some well-chosen rostrum in that great house, 
he would make the burning thoughts of his mind, the soaring aspirations of his heart, audible to all the people. How had Cobden begun his career, and bright, had it not been in this way? Why should not he be as great, greater than either, greater, because in these coming days a man of the people would be able to wield a power more extensive than the people had earned for themselves in former days? And then, as he walked alone through the streets, he took to making speeches, some such speeches as he would make when he stood up in his place in the House of Commons as the member for Percycross. The honorable member for Percycross. There was something ravishing in the sound. Would not that sound be pleasant to the ears of Polly Neefit? But then was not the thing as distant as it was glorious. How could he be member for Percycross, seeing that in all matters he was subject to his father? His father hated the very name of the Cheshire Cheese, and was, in every turn and feeling of his life, diametrically opposed to his son's sentiments. He would, nevertheless, go to his father and demand assistance. If, on such an occasion as this, his father should give him a stone when he asked for bread, he and his father must be two. If, when such a prospect as this is held out to his son, he cannot see it, said Ontario, then he can see nothing. But yet he was sure that his father wouldn't see it. To his extreme astonishment, Mr. Moggs Sr. did see it. It was some time before Mr. Moggs Sr. clearly understood the proposition which was made to him, but when he did, he became alive to the honor, and perhaps profit, of having a member of his firm in Parliament. Of politics, in the abstract, Mr. Moggs Sr. knew very little, nor indeed did he care much. In matters referring to trade, he was a conservative because he was a master. He liked to be able to manage his people, and to pay five shillings threepence instead of five shillings eightpence for the making of a pair of boots. He hated the Cheshire cheese because his son went there, and because his son entertained strange and injurious ideas which were propagated at that low place. But if the Cheshire cheese would send his son to Parliament, Mr. Moggs did not know but what the Cheshire cheese might be very well. At any rate, he undertook to pay the bills if Ontario, his son, were brought forward as a candidate for the borough. He lost his head so completely in the glory of the thing that it never occurred to him to ask what might be the probable amount of the expenditure. There ain't no father in all London as would do more for his son than I would, if only I seed there was something in it, said Moggs Sr. with a tear in his eye. Moggs Jr. was profuse in gratitude, profuse in obedience, profuse in love. Oh, heavens, what a golden crown was there now within his grasp! All this occurred between the father and son early in the morning at Shepherd's Bush, whither the son had gone out to the father after a night of feverish longing and ambition. They went into town together on the top of the omnibus, and Ontario felt that he was being carried heavenwards. What a heaven had he before him, 
even in that fortnight's canvas which it would be his glory to undertake what truths he would tell to the people how he would lead them with him by political revelations that should be almost divine how he would extract from them bursts of rapturous applause to explain to them that labor is the salt of the earth that would be his mission and then how sweet to teach them the value the inestimable value of the political privilege lately accorded to them or as ontario would put it lately wrested on their behalf from the hands of an aristocracy which was more timid even than it was selfish how sweet to explain this and then to instruct them afterwards that it was their duty now having got this great boon for themselves to see at once that it should be extended to those below them let the first work of household suffrage be a demand for manhood suffrage this had been enunciated by ontario moggs with great effect at the cheshire cheese and now as the result of such enunciation he was going down to percycross to stand as a candidate for the borough he was almost drunk with delight as he sat upon the knife-board of the shepherd's bush omnibus thinking of it all he too went down to percycross making a preliminary journey as had done sir thomas underwood timing his arrival there a day or two after the departure of the lawyer alas he also met much to disappoint him even at that early period of the contest the people whom he was taken to see were not millionaires and tradesmen in a large way of business but leading young men of warm political temperaments this man was a president of a mechanics institute that secretary to an amalgamation of unions for general improvement and a third chairman of the young men's reform association they were delighted to see him and were very civil but he soon found that they were much more anxious to teach him than they were to receive his political lessons when he began as unfortunately he did very early in his dealings with them to open out his own views he soon found that they had views also to open out he was to represent them that is to say become the mouthpiece of their ideas he had been selected because he was supposed to have some command of money of course he would have to address the people in the mechanics hall but the chairman of the young men's reform association was very anxious to tell him what to say on that occasion i am accustomed to addressing people said ontario moggs with a considerable accession of dignity he had the satisfaction of addressing the people and the people received him kindly but he thought he observed that the applause was greater when the secretary of the amalgamation of improvement unions spoke and he was sure that the enthusiasm for the young men's chairman mounted much higher than had done any ardor on his own behalf and he was astonished to find that these young men were just as fluent as himself he did indeed think that they did not go quite so deep into the matter as he did that they had not thought out great questions so thoroughly but they had a way of saying things which which would have told even at the cheshire cheese the result of all this was that at the end of three days 
though he was no doubt candidate for the borough of Percycross, and in that capacity a great man in Percycross, he did not seem to himself to be so great as he had been when he had made the journey down from London. There was a certain feeling that he was a cat's paw, brought there for certain objects which were not his objects, because they wanted money, and someone who would be fool enough to fight a losing battle. He did not reap all that meed of personal admiration for his eloquence which he expected. And then, during these three days, there arose another question, the discussion of which embarrassed him not a little. Mr. Westmacott was in the town, and there was a question whether he and Mr. Westmacott were to join forces. It was understood that Mr. Westmacott and Mr. Westmacott's leading friends objected to this, but the chairman of the young men and the presidents and the secretaries on the radical side put their heads together and declared that if Mr. Westmacott were proud, they would run their horse alone. They would vote for Moggs and for Moggs only. Or else, as it was whispered, they would come to terms with Mr. Griffinbottom and see that Sir Thomas was sent back to London. The chairman and the presidents and the secretaries were powerful enough to get the better of Mr. Westmacott, and large placards were printed, setting forward the joint names of Westmacott and Moggs. The two liberal candidates were to employ the same agent and were to canvass together. This was all very well, was the very thing which Moggs should have desired, but it was all arranged without any consultation with him, and he felt that the objection which had been raised was personal to himself. Worse than all, when he was brought face to face with Mr. Westmacott, he had not a word to say for himself. He tried it and failed. Mr. Westmacott had been a member of Parliament and was a gentleman. Ontario, for aught he himself knew, might have called upon Mr. Westmacott for the amount of Mr. Westmacott's little bill. He caught himself calling Mr. Westmacott Sir, and almost wished that he could bite out his own tongue. He felt that he was a nobody in the interview, and that the chairman, the secretaries, and the presidents were regretting their bargain, and saying among themselves that they had done very badly in bringing down Ontario Moggs as a candidate for their borough. There were moments before he left Percycross in which he was almost tempted to resign. But he left the town the accepted candidate of his special friends, and was assured with many parting grasps of the hand on the platform that he would certainly be brought in at the top of the pole. Another little incident should be mentioned. He had been asked by the electioneering agent for a small trifle of some hundred pounds towards the expenses, and this, by the generosity of his father, he had been able to give. "'We shall be able to get along now like a house on fire,' said the agent, as he pocketed the check. Up to that moment there may have been doubts upon the agent's mind." As he went back to London, he acknowledged to himself that he had failed hitherto. He had failed in making that impression at Percycross, which would have been becoming to him as the future member of Parliament for the borough, but he gallantly resolved that he would do better in the future. 
he would speak in such a way that the men of Percycross should listen to him and admire. He would make occasion for himself. He thought that he could do better than Mr. Westmacott, put more stuff in what he had got to say, and whatever might happen to him he would hold up his head. Why should he not be as good a man as Westmacott? It was the man that was needed, not the outside trappings. Then he asked himself a question whether, as trappings themselves were so trivial, a man was necessarily mean who dealt in trappings. He did not remember to have heard of a bootmaker in Parliament, but there should be a bootmaker in Parliament soon, and thus he plucked up his courage. On his journey down to Percycross he had thought that immediately on his return to London he would go across to Hendon and take advantage of his standing as a candidate for the borough. But as he returned he resolved that he would wait till the election was over. He would go to Polly with all his honors on his head. End of chapter 21 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina